existed, or more properly, since he's eternal, he exists as Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that each person is fully God. This isn't a pie chart where you have one who's 33 and one-third percent God and another one who's 33 and one-third percent God, or maybe God the Father has a lion's share of 50% and God the Son's a junior partner at 25. And the... All equally and fully God. They function as a unit in communicating this foundational doctrine, this foundational Christian teaching. So, why might somebody have an inclination or desire to adjust these statements. If I say they go as a unit, why might? Because at first glance, without uh, careful consideration, they may seem contradictory. How can God be both one and three at the same time? That doesn't make any sense, right? But there are more questions to consider. We'll come back to that one uh, more towards the end. How did the Christian church arrive at a teaching like the Trinity? Because if it was me, I'm not necessarily the brightest bulb in the strand anyway, but if it was me, I don't think I'd come up with something like this. And I don't think you would either. Because it's not something that naturally we would arrive at. You know, there's, how did the Christian church come to this? So, as I said earlier, it's not necessarily difficult to articulate, right? There is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. I would imagine if we took some time tonight, each of you could leave the room with that definition memorized. It is not that difficult to articulate. But there's no way to fully wrap our human minds around it or to illustrate it without distorting some aspect of it and falling short. There's a potential tension in the doctrine that has led some in history and in modern times to deny some aspect of it or another outright or to kind of try to redefine the terms to the same effect. And we'll kind of touch on that later on in this talk. But in fairness to them and in fairness to some of you in the room as we go through this to all of us, the doctrine of the Trinity is mind-blowing. If any of you walked in tonight and said, doctrine of the Trinity got it down, Backwards and forwards, if you're leaving here tonight sensing that you're, you would have that type of understanding of God and how he exists and how he relates and functions within himself, and you think as a finite created being that you can grasp that, take a deep breath and know that that is beyond our remit. But why would Christianity adamantly hold to a doctrine like this? Think about it. Jesus and his disciples came out of a Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, right? And it differs significantly from what would have been common in Jesus' time as an understanding of God being one, a unity, which would have been what they heard in the synagogue with statements like, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it was also fundamentally uh, opposed to the polytheism that defined the religious world of the Roman Empire, to which they would have said, yeah, we've got a whole catalog of gods. Let's just add Jesus and Yahweh and whatever this spirit thing is you guys talk about. We can just 
add that into our, to our list. So there was really no historical, cultural reason or religious reason why they would have said, okay, now the next iteration we should be going here with is the Trinity. There's nothing in the natural world or in our human reasoning that would prompt the church to come up with a doctrine like the Trinity. That there is one God who exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally being God. Now there are some things we can grasp about God with our human reasoning. There are things that God expects us to deduce from the world around us. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul taught that there are certain things that can be known about God by simply considering the universe around us. That here he's saying there's a way in which God discloses something about himself through what he's created. That's called the revelation of God. When God reveals something about himself, when he discloses something about himself, it's a revelation. And general revelation, everything God has made is available to everybody. The sun rises and sets around the world. The rains come and go. Gravity functions everywhere around the globe. By looking at what has been made, we are meant to deduce there's a God and that he's powerful and have some understanding of that. But there's some things that can only be known about God through what we call special revelation. So everything that's made is a part of what's called general revelation or natural revelation. For clarity, there is no way to come to a, an understanding of the Trinity simply by looking at the world around us. It requires a special revelation of God. God choosing to disclose something about himself either through written communication verbally or through self-disclosure as we see in Jesus. Written communication as we have in the Bible or a self-disclosure of himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to cover in future weeks why the church believes that God has revealed himself in this book in a special way. Why God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ in a special way. But tonight, I just want us to note its bearing on the doctrine of the Trinity. Because why does the Christian church profess and teach that God is Trinity? And to put it simply, it is because in the pages of the Bible, God reveals himself in a way that the best explanation of the evidence is what we find articulated in the doctrine of the Trinity that we stated at the beginning of this. That there is one God. That he eternally exists as three people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that they are equally, each person is equally God. Now as we said last week, the term Trinity itself is not a word you are going to find on the pages, any page of the Old Testament or the New Testament. If you go to the back of your Bible, some of you may have this thing called the concordance. I don't know if you've ever discovered that. They used to sell them in huge books too when I was a young man. Now they have this thing called the internet and it's much easier to just click in and you can find something. But if you were to go here, or even if you were to go online, 
and say, give me chapter and verse of where the, the word Trinity occurs, you will not find it. Some have argued, well, therefore, it's not a biblical concept. But the value of the word and the doctrine is in it capturing and communicating something about God that emerges as we read the Bible. That's where the value in it lies. And there are passages in the Old Testament that allude to the fact that God is plural. That there is an aspect to him that is complex, that is plural. It is hinted at. There are clues about it. Now this is going to differ a little bit from those of you who are in the Crosslands course. We went through passages like Genesis and some other things. I would like to take you to a few other passages that I think even illustrate this and argue this even better. One is found in Daniel chapter 7. I'll have it up here uh, on the screen. If you want to look in your Bible along with it for any notes or anything, that would be fine too. But Daniel's having a vision. It says, in his vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples of every language worshipped him. Now I want you to note some things in this, these two verses that may not be apparent to us from our cultural perspective reading of it. But one like a son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven is terminology only used in reference to God in the Old Testament. Only God comes with the clouds. In fact, there's a worship song we sing here at church. He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. It's capturing the imagery of this song. So here's one like the Son of Man who's obviously being spoken of as if he's God. It's clearly saying that he, this, this individual is divine. But it also says that he comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, which is someone distinct from him, but also clearly God. That is a reference to God in the Old Testament. So there is that dynamic. You have an individual in the Old Testament, the Son of Man, who is seen as divine, but who's also coming into the presence of another divine being. But you have the Old Testament saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. You're having plurality in the context of unity. All right? There is also someone in the Old Testament known as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. That is unique from simply just a generic angel who is spoken of as if he is God, but is also distinct from God. If you were to look in Genesis chapter 16, we just finished our series in the book of Genesis, but in Genesis chapter 16, if you remember, uh, Abram and Sarah um, God had promised them an offspring, an heir, and it wasn't happening, so they decided to take matters into their own hand. And so Sarah gave one of her maidservants to Abram, and she bore a child, and it led to all kinds of problems, and she mistreats her, this, this woman named Hagar, and sends her away. And she's in distress, she's in the wilderness, she's crying out to the Lord. And in chapter 16, Hagar says this, the angel of the Lord said to her, Actually, in verse 10, the angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Now, someone speaking like that, I don't know if you remember the original promise to Abraham. 
But do you remember what did God promise? Your descendants will be like what? Like the stars, right? This is how, this is how God speaks. And it says, you are, the angel of the Lord said to her in verse 11, You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. So at one point he's speaking like God. Then he's referring to God. And then as we read on in verse 12, he says, He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And look at her response. She gave this name to the Lord. If you look in your Bible, it's capital L-O-R-D. Not like a term of like respect for whoever it was she was speaking to. She gave this name about the Lord who spoke to her. So it's connecting that this angel of the Lord is actually <laughs> the Lord. But he also spoke of the Lord distinctly from himself. If you're saying like, ugh. So it's alluded to. There's, there's hints of it. There's clues of it in the Old Testament. There are more examples like this that we don't have time to go through tonight. Throughout the Old Testament, that hint give us clues to the complexity to God while still saying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it should not surprise us. If you remember, if you were here for the Bible overview, God's big picture. We talked about everything from the Old Testament moved from promise to fulfillment, right? We talked about how things move from foreshadowing to the reality. There's always greater fulfillment, greater clarity, greater focus. It should not surprise us to find that what is being hinted at in the Old Testament comes into greater light in the New Testament. So one uh, theologian, his name is Louis Burkhoff, he said the Old Testament contains a clear anticipation of the future revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament. And so the doctrine of the Trinity really comes into fuller development as we come to the New Testament, as you would expect. We encounter passages and references to three who are each identified as God, which is why they're referenced in the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're each individually referred to not only as being God, but doing things only God can do and being worshipped as God. Right? They are each referred to as God. They are each seen as doing things only God can do and being worshipped as God. Now, there's just a few passages I would like us to work through tonight. Now, I don't have these on the screen, so this is where you're going to have to be active and either have a really strong thumb and open a Bible app or open up your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I'll turn there as well, excuse me. John chapter 1. Beginning at verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now, before I go any further, there's enough in those 
couple of statements to just speak volumes, which we won't, again, have the time to do tonight. But I just want to draw your attention to some things, because this is John's gospel. He's writing, basically, a gospel is like a theological biography, I guess you could say, about, about Jesus. He has a point. And as he's starting it, he's like, this is, this is how you need to understand this Jesus of whom I'm going to write about. And what does it say? He portrays him as the word. We know that because later on in verse 14, it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So again, he's, he's introducing the life of Jesus. And what does he say? The word was with God and the word was God. So again, that distinction and also that sense of connection. They are both God, but there's a distinction between them. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word acted like God. What does it say he do? He says, through him all things were made, right? We can go back to the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word acted like God. The Word became flesh. And then in verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. <laughs> if you caught that, but he's referring to the Word. He says, no one's ever seen God, but God, the one and only, the Word, who is at his right side, makes him known. One God, plurality, Father, Son. In John chapter 14, just go further. We'll look at this a little bit at the Holy Spirit. So in John 1 there, we have the Father and the Son. Again, these are just, this is just the tip of the iceberg <laughs> in terms of the verses we could go through tonight. <clears throat> but in John chapter 14, Jesus was comforting his disciples. He was telling them that he was <clears throat> going to be leaving them. He was going to the cross. Eventually, this is where he's leading in the gospel and he promises them that as he leaves, that he is going to send a comforter, a counselor. In chapter 14, verse 25, he says, um, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you everything I said to you. And then if we jump forward to 16, where he's still in this... this um, this discourse, if you will, in chapter 16, verse 7, to give clarity to this idea of the Holy Spirit, he says, I tell you the truth, <clears throat> it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So what's the point I'm trying to make, at this point at least, just about the Holy Spirit? One is to clarify and to dispel a misunderstanding sometimes of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is merely just like a, a force <laughs> or the influence of God in the world. Jesus refers to him using personal pronouns. He says, when he comes, that the Holy Spirit is not some like static electricity in the air as we worship but a person the third person of the trinity and he says that he's in no way inferior to the son they're all equally god because did you catch that as jesus said it's actually better if i go and then he comes 
That this is not like the third string is coming in. That this is all just another iteration of the plan when he comes. And just to make clear that the Holy Spirit is fully God, just turn quickly to Acts chapter 5. Continue to go back in your Bible to Acts chapter 5. Again, um, a passage if you were following along this week through the Crossland study you would have come across, but want to share with the, everyone who's here tonight, which by the way, I'm referencing the Crossland's course, but as always, whether you're enrolled or not, these evenings, what we're doing right now is designed that we all process this kind of information together. And if you're able and you have the margin and the desire to have the added benefit of the Crossland's course throughout the week, and as we discuss here later on this evening, that's why we're putting it on. So just want you to be aware of what I'm referencing there. But listen to Acts chapter 5, just to summarize. It's the early church, and um, there are these two individuals, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And the situation had been that there were people of property who were selling their property and bringing the money to the apostles' feet to be spread and shared among them so that everyone's needs would be met. Ananias and Sapphira decide to sell a piece of their property and bring it to the apostles, but to hold some of it back, to be deceptive in, in the process. And in chapter 5, verse 3, says, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so in those two statements, I don't know if you've caught, he says, what made you think you could lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to us, you've lied to God. He made the connection between the Holy Spirit and God. So why do I say these things? Again, what I'm trying to um, have us see is as we look at the passages that are relevant in the New Testament and pull them all together, the references to the three of them, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each being referred to as being God, each doing things only God can do, and all three of them being worshipped as God. Now there's two more things before we move on. There are also just general statements where all three are present. Now some of you may be familiar with the New Testament. You can think of some of these. Um, one is when Jesus was, was baptized. I think I might have a slide for this one. Yes, I do. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. This is by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so... Not only do you see them individually being referred to in this way, now we have in this one passage of Scripture all three of them present. We see this even further in verse chapter, um, the end of Matthew's Gospel. I'll read this and I'll have a slide on it. But when Jesus said, uh, before he ascended to heaven, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So in terms of the mission of the church, when before this he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore make disciples. 
And then he equates in that, teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you in, in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. The, the identity and authority of God equally shared among all three. And so these passages we've looked at, I know it's brief, but trust me, they're the tip of the iceberg of a sample of greater number of references that taken together led the church to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. Contrary to what, you know, <laughs> I was going to say like Dan Brown, you know, and the Da Vinci Code and stuff like that or other things you may have heard, there wasn't like this conspiracy of we formed a new religion, let's differentiate it, let's make it different. Because in reality, who would have come up with this? And it didn't make their life any easier. It's only made it harder in some sense. So this is why they articulated it the way that they did. <clears throat> but let's conclude with this. If that's the doctrine, if that's why they came to the conclusion, because as they read the Bible, they couldn't get escape that God is one, but there's this threeness thing going on. <laughs> and you have to capture that to be faithful to what the Bible says. But that question, how can God be three persons but one God? Isn't that a contradiction? Some of you may be saying, especially if you're a seeker here tonight in some sense, isn't that a contradiction? Something cannot be one and three at the same time. To which I would say, you're absolutely right. Something cannot be one and three at the same time. Like, just to be clear, that's not what the doctrine of the Trinity says. And we'll get to that in just a moment. In fact, significant errors and heresies have been put forward trying to resolve this tension that exists between God being one and three, as found in the Bible. Some of you listened to some talks this week or read some things this week about this idea that, well, maybe God just came in different, like, forms, basically. Like, in, he came as the Father, and then he kind of put on a new identity and came as the Son, and then came and put on a new identity called the Holy Spirit. But it was all just one God coming in three different ways, that was known as modalism, and if you listen to the talk tonight, you can see why that just can't work, because all three showed up at once, right? It, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit the data. Or you had someone like um, Arius, who came up with this idea that really the sun was created. But wait a minute, what's that passage we just read about in John's gospel? In the beginning was the... Word? And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He created all things, and through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing has been made that has been made. That doesn't work either. The answer to the question is relatively simple to state. Again, if the doctrine was easy to state, what is it? There's one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally God. The answer to the question is relatively simple but is beyond anything within our reason and our experience to grasp. Now, just to be clear, to answer the question, how can God be three persons, yet one God, and it not be a contradiction, the doctrine of the Trinity does not state that there are three gods and one God at the same time. 
That would be a contradiction. To say that something is one thing and not one thing at the same time, the same like, I'm here and I'm not here, are two contradictory statements. They both can't be true. You can't have one God and three gods at the same time. That would be a contradiction. What is it that the doctrine of the Trinity actually articulates? That, there, that God is one in being, but three in persons. You're like, oh, that clears it up for me. <laughs> that God is one in being and three in persons. Now, this is not a contradiction because a being and a person are different concepts. I am a being. I'm a human being, believe it or not. Some of you may doubt that. I am a human being. This is all of us are human beings, right? And I am also a person. I am Steve. So all of us are human beings. Does that mean we're identical? No. We're a category. We're, we're beings. But what makes me a person is me, right? You, you know me. I'm Steve. <laughs> I'm not... I, so we have this experience of knowing one another as human beings, and with every human being, there is a person. That's how we are constituted. There's a difference between human being and person. There's a difference between essence and person. God happens to be tripersonal in his being. And that is not a contradiction. It's just we have no point of reference for it. We can't wrap our minds around how does this work? How does the Father relate to the Son, relate to the Spirit? How does, he, how does he function like this? It's not a contradiction, but is without a doubt beyond our comprehension to deal with tonight. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology book said this, This tripersonal form of being is far beyond our ability to comprehend. It is a kind of existence far different from anything we have experienced and far different from anything else in the universe. And to that, I would just say this, should we expect anything else from God? Do we really think we are capable of grasping the infinite God with our finite minds and limited experience? We can't even fully grasp ourselves and one another. As one person has said, and this, this statement has some value to it, you know, you've probably heard it before, try to understand the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. Try to explain it away, and you'll lose your soul. The God of the Bible can only be understood and related to as a trinity. All three play a unique role in our salvation. God the Father planned it. Jesus the Son secured it in going to the cross. God sent him. The Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts and seals us and secures us. You cannot have the Christian faith without one God eternally existing in three persons and each equally God. Now, I want to just share one verse with you. I shared it in the email that went out this week. It's known as the apostolic blessing or just simply the grace. We've said it here sometimes in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. 
that captures this idea of one God, three persons eternally, each equally God, all involved in the securing and uh, application and planning of our salvation. And the Apostle Paul says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the, hel- ho- the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, I had no delusions tonight of being able to satisfy all your curiosities and questions about the doctrine of the Trinity. I wanted to introduce it to you. I wanted to explain to you why Christians believe it and why it's not irrational to do so. But I want to say something similar to what I said last week when we began this. We are not called to analyze and fully comprehend every aspect of God. That isn't even possible. He's infinite, as we'll talk about in a few weeks, and we're not. Even when we get to heaven, it's impossible to fully grasp him because there's no limits to him, and we're limited. What are we called to do? To know him, love him, and worship him for who he is, how he's revealed himself, and what he's done for us. That as we think about who he is and it's beyond our comprehension, what else should we expect? We're to bow before him, the one who is also three. And we're meant to marvel at his glory. So let's just pray together. Uh, Sam's going to come and lead us in another song. I'm going to explain what we're going to do with the rest of our time. So let's pray. Lord, um, wow, this idea of Trinity. That you are in a mode of existence and being that is just beyond our comprehension. And Father, in some sense, that is a difficulty for us. We struggle with it. That in some sense, this is one of those things that we don't have to accept uncritically, but we do have to look at it and say this is a, a step of faith in light of the evidence, in light of who Jesus is and who we come to know him to be through the pages of the New Testament and through history and the whole testimony of the Bible. This is who you portray yourself to be. And so, Father, where our reason is not fully capable, doesn't mean we need to check our brain at the door. It means we need to humble ourselves and admit we cannot grasp everything. And we need to act upon what we know. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think of who you are, that we would be compelled to respond to you in worship, in faith, that we would bow before the one who is also three and marvel at the salvation that you have provided for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would be honored among us, and that you and your purposes would be be accomplished here. Please bring clarity where there has been lack of that tonight by any fault of mine. And um, Lord, may this spur us on to greater study, not for study's sake, but in love and, and honor of who you are. As we turn now to sing in worship, Lord, I pray that our hearts would respond in this way for you're worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing two uh, songs and hymns to finish. Do we need to sort the...